0: Good morning. Good morning. Is it good to be in the house of the Lord? Amen. Amen. God bless you. If you will, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter twelve. We're about to finish this wonderful chapter. Got one more one more section after this after today that we will close out this wonderful chapter of Matthew's gospel. As Matthew is showing us who Christ is in relation to how people respond to him. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 43. Three verses today, that is all. The words of our Savior himself, Jesus. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Mm. Powerful words from our Savior. Let's pray. Father God, have... You have spoken to us in your word. You speak to us in ways that oftentimes we do not listen or cannot hear. The reason we cannot hear is because we are not listening. Our focus is on someone else or something else. A lot of times that focus is on us alone. But this morning, Father, we read words from your son Jesus and these are warning words, warning passage to us and First off, to these Pharisees and to the crowds who were there with him, well, God, oh, how we need to hear these words even now. So, God, I pray for your mercies upon us, that you would cause our heart to listen. Father, that you would cause our heart and our souls to not be empty, but to be filled with your Son, And with your Holy Spirit, we see here that an empty vessel is in a dangerous place and prone to even worse evil than before. I pray, God, that this morning you would cause all who hear these words to take assessment, that they would listen to your your words, your wisdom and your your holiness about our state before you. Are we empty? Are we empty? Or are we filled with Christ? Help us, Father, today to see and to obey. This time is for you, Father. Speak to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. Jesus' teaching moment with the demon-possessed man, remember back in verses 22 through 29, that incident where Jesus is casting out a demon from a man, and he was then able to see and to speak. That event carries even to here, to this passage, about an empty house that is cleaned out. And this empty house that was clean is ripe for reoccupation. You notice that? Our Lord has plenty to say. He's speaking to these blasphemous Pharisees, if you remember that a few weeks ago blasphemous Pharisees. And he's also speaking now in this text, not only to these Pharisees, but to the crowds that were nearby. And this is a warning passage. This is a warning passage. And who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the morally upright. That's who the Pharisees were. They were right in their own eyes. They, they did the moral thing. And perhaps even the crowds that were listening were in the same position. They were God-fearing people who obeyed the law or at least felt that they were doing the best they could. And so this is who Jesus is speaking to. And what we're seeing here is that these who are morally upright, the rule followers, are the ones who act morally righteous in their activity. But in truth, they are empty. You seeing that? Have you ever cleaned your house or a room or a closet, stood back and admired your work and thought to yourself, you say to yourself with, with joy and pride, I've done a good job. You ever done that? Yeah. Only to have what was once orderly and pristine to be destroyed when the family comes home <laughs> or that husband comes home from work. Um, in other words, how long can a clean house stay clean? Life is messy. Would we agree? Yes. Now, in defense of the men in the room, the husbands, we're not always the messy ones. Sometimes messes happen in other ways. We're not always the guilty party. Yes. <laughs> but we can clean something. We can spend a lot of time ordering a closet, cleaning out a room, whatever it is. But whether it's someone else's fault or our own fault, that doesn't stay orderly and clean all the time, does it? The warning here from Jesus in this passage, it refers to a blind understanding that one's soul is clean. And we can clean our soul when we purge immoral action from our lifestyle. only to stand back and admire our great morality. Anybody ever been there? I'm a good moral person. Look at the good things I do. When we stand back and we admire the great work of our, of our doing, where we, we've cleaned out our life, we, we've turned the corner and we're doing the right thing. What we see here in this text is that we're often unaware of that dangerous enemy lurking outside who's looking for an opportunity to reoccupy what we've cleaned out. And what happens is that the second messy occupation of these demons is worse than the first one. Let's look here at verse 43. Jesus says, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. The main character here, this is a parable. Jesus is actually sharing a wisdom here through a parable. And the main character here is an unclean spirit, a demon, if you will. I think we can learn much about the nature of demons in just one verse, verse 43. We can see a lot here about them. Demons are fallen angels. They're immortal spirit beings, created beings, yet fallen. Clearly an evil spirit here, what we see, an evil spirit must possess something, a physical object in this material world. And in this case, the unclean spirit once resided in a person an unclean spirit residing or dwelling within a human being. That's what we see here, at least at that at some point that occurred. Now, here's the interesting thing in verse 43, you have a created you have a created spirit that is now unclean and fallen. You also have a created human being who is now fallen. You got two things going on here. Both are created, both are fallen, but but one thing to see here only human beings are made in God's image. The spirit is not. The evil spirit here that departs is not made in God's image. That's important to see as we work through this text because only the human being has the hope of salvation. This evil spirit has no hope. It's what we're seeing here. So why would an unclean spirit leave a man that the spirit possessed. I mean, there might be more than one reason, and Jesus doesn't necessarily clarify the reason here, but it is tied into, I think, him him casting out demons earlier in the chapter. But the departure of a demon may be the result of a moral choice by a possessed man. Jesus may also be talking directly to these Pharisees here. He may be also talking directly to the morally uprights. It could be two, one of two things. Either a demon is cast out by one's moral choices, or a demon is cast out by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Son of God. Both can occur. We don't know exactly. I'm, a, I'm assuming that Jesus is referring directly, more, more directly to the demons that he casts out, but I think subtly he's also talking to the morally upright in the crowd and the Pharisees who do righteous things, and temporarily a demon may depart. I think you've got both things going on here. The departure may be the result of a moral choice. A, a moral decision could have been made for to forsake whatever sin that the demon was tempting the person with, right? Demons can control us and tempt us. And if you resist that temptation, the demon can depart. That is possible. We, we, we can see part this evidence here. Uh, But, because if you, if you do not allow a demon to control you, if you resist a demon's temptations, then the demon has no more power and there's no more reason to stay. But, I think we cannot impose freedom of choice upon this demon. In other words, the demon doesn't necessarily have choice to do whatever the demon wants. Right? Demons, they, they only have the power that humans grant them or the power that God permits sometimes both at the same time. If a human is possessed by a demon and and submits to the temptations by that demon to then sin, then the power of the demon is granted by the human will and the fall of temptation. Do you realize that we can give demons power by our will? A demon has no power whatsoever unless either a human will permits something or God's power directs something or a combination of the two. Demons have no power. Satan has no power other than what we as human beings give them. That's it. So if a human possessed by a demon submits to these temptations, then the power of the demon is granted by the will of the human. And likewise, if a possessed human being rejects the sinful action or the temptation, the demon loses all power of control. So that could be going on here too. This is why perhaps the unclean spirit goes out. But but secondly, an unclean spirit might be cast out by the power of Jesus himself. Most often in this context, I think that's what's happening too. The casting out, the exorcism, would be by the power of the Spirit of God, either through a prophet or in this case, Jesus himself. Or, And we also see evidence in the New Testament of the apostles. They had power and the ability to cast out demons. All of that was through the Spirit of God. And when we see here in verse uh, 43, when this unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. What, if, what is this waterless places? The demon has left the person and is now wandering in waterless places. You ever thought about that? What, what is that? Well, Jesus, he's describing the state of this unclean spirit when it no longer possesses a person. Apart from possessing a physical being or an inanimate object, a demon will wander aimlessly in the wilderness. This evil spirit, apparently according to Jesus' parable here, wanders in desolation in a barren place, a place of discomfort. Now, wilderness represents separation from God in Scripture. Whenever we see waterless places, that's wilderness, barren places, this would be a clear separation from God's presence, clearly a season of discomfort. And in this case, the evil spirit is de- is separated not only from God, clearly, but also from the image bearer of God. That's you and me. You realize that we, we are made in God's image. And so... A demon will, they prefer to possess the image bearers of God. Can you imagine the, the thumbing of the nose at God by possessing a creature made in God's image? That's the desire of the demonic forces here. But also a desert wilderness, a waterless place. It was a natural place for demons. And in Jewish tradition, this is where they were haunt. This is where they would reside. This was their haunt. Right? A haunt is a place where evil spirits dwell. And so when we see in, in, in Jewish tradition, in scripture, a desert wilderness is a place where evil forces, demonic forces, dwell. That gives you a deeper understanding of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, doesn't it? Gives you a little bit of a different perspective in the in the exile story of the children of Israel. They wandered in the wilderness. In its own corrupt way, I think here in verse forty three, this demon was seeking rest and and longed for a return to its host. Can you imagine? I mean, where would you rather be? Would you rather be wandering in the desert wilderness, or would you rather be in a comfortable home somewhere? Demons are the same way. <laughs> Ponder that for a second. Perhaps this demon was restless because it could not express its evil nature in the wilderness. I mean, in the wilderness, at best, it might be able to possess a a rabbit or a a tree or a rock or something. That's about it. I mean, what fun is that? Clearly, the demon wanted more. And so a home for this demon was the human being. Because it's through the human being that Satan and his demons can most successfully work their opposition against God. The demon has not been very successful in possessing inanimate objects. They're more successful when they possess the image bearers of God. So the demon here is clearly craving that restless and wandering because it's been cast out. Now, let's look here in verse 44. Then it says, speaking of the demon, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Now, that's a very interesting thing. We're going to dwell a little bit longer in this one verse. Let's figure out this demon is now, it comes back to the host and sees that everything is in order and swept out and clean. Hmm, isn't that nice? Now, let's think about what Jesus is implying here. If an unclean spirit seeks to return to its host, this spirit has a sense of ownership or possession of this host. So the person who who was possessed by this demon, in this context here, is clearly weaker and has some level of submission to this spirit. The spirit has control, some, some type of control over this person still. That's an important point here. In verse 44, when this, when this evil spirit, this unclean spirit comes back in verse 44, there's an implication here that there must have been, there's still some hint of control here. But what we see in verse 44 is that this house where the spirit once dwelled is now empty. It's clean. It's orderly. Just like you've just finished cleaning your closet or your garage. What's coming next? I think that in this case, it shows that the state of a person who successfully, they, they successfully resisted a temptation or they successfully resisted this demon and it was cast out or, or, and they've successfully reordered their moral outlook. You ever been there? You're in a state of sin. You're in a state of disobedience to the Lord. You know that you are immoral in whatever you're choosing at the moment or you're doing at the moment, and you can consciously reorder your steps. I'm going to be more upright. I'm going to be moral today. I'm not going to do the wrong thing. I'm going to do the right. We can, on our own power, do the right thing. Yet, what we see here in verse 44 is, whoever this person is that is now Empty of the unclean spirit, there is a, there's a state of being swept clean and put in order. We can do that. But for how long? For how long? That's what I think Jesus is pointing out here. I think this shows the state of the person that they are in, they have reordered their moral aptitude, if you want to use that language. They've reordered their thinking about their life for a little bit. Even if it, for a short time this person chooses morality over immorality, they choose the good over the bad, and so their state of being is swept clean and in order. Feels good, doesn't it? Don't you like it when your house is clean and in order? Amen. But then life happens. Amen. Notice how important a point in point here in verse 44 the person once possessed by the unclean spirit is now empty. That's an important point here in this text. Nothing replaced the unclean spirit when it departed. The unclean spirit was swept out. The, the moral aptitude of the person, the soul was clean and in order. But we see here that in verse 44, when it, comes back to the house, it is empty. Nothing's there. Yet we must remember that something caused this unclean spirit to leave in the first place. So I think we have to infer from what Jesus is saying here that the person's own will overcame the temptations that the spirit played with. But this cleansing of the soul is revealed in verse 44 to be temporary. We could also imply here from Jesus' actions and his words that very likely he's talking directly to the exorcism of the demons in the previous verses. But he's also talking to the Pharisees and the morally upright in the crowd too. He didn't cast out any demons from them, but they're morally upright too. So you've got two things going on here. Many things can allow one temporary freedom from sin... And that demon that is tempting the sin can be pushed away. And so what are some things that can give us temporary freedom from temptation and sin? I mean, fear. seen by afraid of the consequences of your sin? That can scare you straight for a little bit, can't it? Disease. I mean, an illness can cause us to reorder our lives and rethink our lives a little bit, can't they? Uh, social stigma. I mean, shame. Shame, shame is powerful. I used it on my kids all the time. I didn't have to punish them too much. I just shamed them. You know? Guilt can correct behavior pretty quickly, can't it? A good deed. I mean, whatever it is, there's a lot of things here that a tragedy can motivate a person to rid themselves of sinful habits. They can wake you up and you can stop. But it's always temporary. Sometimes the motivation to Turn around a life can also be a positive thing, not necessarily always a negative thing. It can also be a positive thing, such as a loving family member can come and convince you, I love you. Listen to me. Look at what you're doing. A warm and fuzzy feeling after a worship experience. People leave worship every Sunday morning feeling uplifted and encouraged, as rightly we should. Yet, before you get home, you're yelling at the kids kicking the dog. Amen? Whatever, I mean, so there are are things that can give us temporary freedom from temptation and, and immorality. It could be a negative thing. It could be a positive thing. But Jesus presents a scenario here where a cleansing has clearly occurred. One's own will to resist temptation and sin, I think, is what's being revealed here in the empty house. Because it's an empty house, I think it's more the will of the person more so than just the power of God. Because if if you overcome a particular sin by your own will, what's going to be left is nothing. It's going to be empty. A moral person may successfully set their spiritual house in order, but it, it, it's it's not going to last forever. We can resist evil thoughts and we can resist evil actions, but it doesn't take long before we're right back where we began. And it's always worse. So let's focus on this key word here also in verse 45 that describes the spiritual house as empty, unoccupied. It's not full. So the soul here is empty. Now, whether it's in the moral state of being or an immoral state, uh, will be subject really to the reoccupation of the unclean spirits. Evil will return to a person who has successfully overcome the temptation. Every time that you successfully overcome a temptation under your own will, evil will return. I think that's what Jesus is trying to get us to see here. Because the person welcomes occupancy. Our soul craves to be filled. Whether we realize it or not, our soul, when it's empty, is craving someone or something to fill it. But the truth spoken by Jesus here is that the empty and clean and well-ordered spiritual house was not made that way through the miracle of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 44, I think, makes it very clear. The state of this person after the exorcism, after the departure of the demon, the soul was still empty, clean and tidy, but nothing replaced the demon. Had this person been cleansed of the demon through repentance of sin and trust in Jesus Christ, what would have occurred? Jesus would have taken up residence within the soul. And had Jesus taken up residence in the soul, there would have been no room for any returning demon, much less seven more. You see the point here. So the attitude of, reality, of morality, a religious and self-righteous morality, is subject to Satan in a way that a broken and contrite heart of the immoral person is not. If you are self-righteous and upright in your own power, you are more subject to Satan in ways that you cannot see because you are blinded to your own self-righteousness and your own sense of morality. But it's the broken and the contrite heart of the sinner that is open and receiving of the spirit of Christ that then takes up residence in the soul. And there's no more room for the demons and the evil spirits to come back. You see the major point here. A moral person may disregard what Jesus the Son did or what the Holy Spirit is doing in casting out the demons. A moral person may, like someone, when we see that Jesus is casting out demons, unless the text specifically says, your sins are forgiven or you are made new, we may may infer that the one who is now cleansed of the demon never repented. Jesus can do mighty works and mighty things in people's lives, and there can be a sense of ingratitude and ignoring what Christ has done. And that's a worse state than before. I think that what Jesus is showing us in this parable is that in this state of calm and serenity, one is most vulnerable to evil influence. We'll let that sink in a minute, Christians. If your life, I'm saying this to myself too, if our lives as Christians is calm and serene, that's a dangerous place to be. It's a wonderful place to be. I'm glad that God gives me peace. I'm glad that my Savior Jesus Christ has granted me freedom from the guilt of sin. But if our lives are serene and calm, that's a great time for an evil attack. Because evil influence is never obvious. Evil is crafty. Evil is cunning. Evil is also very beautiful and seemingly in order. One who is satisfied with a state of serenity and complacency and a peaceful order, I think is one who is in the most spiritual danger or can be. I'm not saying that we should seek out a disruptive life as a Christian. I'm not saying that. That's foolish. Don't go looking for evil spirits to do, to battle. Don't, do, they're going to find you. Trust me. But I think what Jesus is telling us here in verses 43 through 45 is that the, the demon has been cast out. The unclean spirit has gone out. Yet the state of the person is in a more dangerous, precarious state than it was before. That's a very serious warning from our Savior. Remember that there's a spiritual war happening even now. There is a tempter roaming around the earth like a lion. The Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I think the words of Jesus here in Matthew 12 is a warning passage reminding us there are evil forces out there lurking. It's important to remember that this spiritual battle, this spiritual war is between God's elect, his people, his church, and Satan's minions, his demons. The powers of darkness will deceive the elect, just as easily as they will deceive one who is morally self-righteous. What a prize for a demon to take someone who is God's chosen and turn them. The point here in 1 Peter chapter 5, I think verse 6, is for the Christian to be humble under God's hand because self-serving morality is not humble. Humility born from our awareness and our awakening of sin should steer us to cast all our anxiety on Him and to realize His care for our well-being. When we go back to Matthew 12, verse 45, here we see this. Then it goes and brings, and talking about this demon who's departed, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Jesus is clearly speaking to this evil generation. Who did he call evil And in this text? were well, the Pharisees and all the people in the crowds who followed them. And Jesus is warning, he's speaking directly to them. Be careful, he says. You may be morally upright. You may actually succeed in holding off demonic evil spirits and temptation, but be careful. They'll come back in stronger forces, and you'll be in worse state than you were before. Jesus makes a bold point here. His rebuttal is against, again, this evil generation, the legalism of the Pharisees who are self-righteous in their own eyes. So it's, it's, it's the attitude of the legalist that is at the most danger of welcoming a worse evil than was sent away through one's moral obedience. Here's another reason why earning our own salvation cannot work. This is why the, the grace of God is the point here. The grace of our Savior Jesus Christ is being communicated here. He's saying you cannot win this spiritual battle alone. You must depend upon me. The first source of temptation, the first unclean spirit here, actually must have been a weaker demon. That's what it says here in verse 45, because it was overcome by a moral choice. I don't want to do that sin, demon. Get away from me. That's a very weak demon. But secondly, we see here in verse 45 that seven other spirits, stronger and more evil than the first, comes back sevenfold. This is a traditional way to express severe punishment. Sevenfold evil. That's pretty big. You thought you had it hard with the first demon. Now you got seven more. Way to go. Amen. What occurs when one's emphasis is, is on moral living? Cause that's what we, we do this. We think, well, I'm a good Christian. I'm doing the right things. I'm obeying my parents. I'm a hard worker at the job. I'm a loving mother, I'm a good student, whatever it is, I'm I'm a good person. What happens here is that moral living and being good overshadows the need for a savior. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us here. Because stronger demons... When they come, they find an empty residence that is easier to occupy because we have the mindset of I'm a good person. What Jesus is saying here in verse 45 is you have that mindset of I'm good, I'm moral. You are opening up a soul that is empty and clean, but ripe for occupation. Notice that Jesus emphasizes that the orderly and his tidy spiritual house has been made a warm place for even a more vile evil to come in. So, when we make our lives moral and good, that's a, that's an honorable goal. Yet the warning here from Jesus is be cautious. You may be opening yourself up and inviting in more evil that is more deceiving and more subtle because your dependence is on your own will and your own good actions, your own moral work, rather than turning to me, your Savior. You see the point? A moral attitude is act, is act, it's exactly what the demons of hell love. They love a good moral person more than anything because they are not alert. They're in a state of complacency. It's the moral attitude that is easy to fool. It's the moral attitude that makes it easy for the most dangerous, unclean spirits to dwell. A moral attitude makes a nice home for a demon. And the demons, we we actually encourage them to be this comforting spirit within us. Because what it is when we live a moral life alone, apart from Christ, that's really a lie. Now, where does Satan work the best within lies. You see the subtlety here? Even in a good lie, it sounds good, it feels good to be a moral person, yet it is a lie. And this is where Satan can come right back in. He can send in more demons to take our lives because we're lying to ourselves Where Christ does not live, we gotta remember that. Where Christ does not live, demons are free to live. That's what we're seeing here in verse 45. When these, when this one demon comes back, he brings back with it seven other spirits. It's because the dwelling place, the spiritual house was empty. Where Christ does not live, demons are free to live. Where Christ does not dominate, Demons are freely invited to reside. We don't have to have a conscious invitation. Come on in, demons. I'll welcome you in. It's even even by abstention of the will. If we abstain from allowing Christ to fill us, if we abstain from the Spirit of God working in us, that itself is an invitation for the demonic spirits to take up residence. To abstain is withholding or avoiding the truth of our sinful state and our need for a Savior. That's a dangerous place to be too. We see here in verse forty-five that Satan's representatives—they—they—they they, they can go into this empty soul, even of a a morally upright, reformed life. Yet it's a Christless life. I think that's what Jesus is trying to say here. You can cast out demons. You can—you can actually, by your own moral attitude, keep demons at bay. But apart from me, a Christless life. These demons settle into security within this moral righteousness. It's a religious delusion that blinds the host. This last, So this is where Jesus comes to the, the end of verse 45, where he says the last state of that man becomes worse than the first, because this person does not know it. The person who was controlled by an evil spirit, and the evil spirit was successfully cast out, is totally blind and unaware that seven more demons are back. That's the worst state. It's like someone who is unaware of a wound. You ever you ever cut yourself or, or stabbed yourself with a needle or a a nail? Anybody ever stepped on a nail and not realized you did until later? Yeah. You just continue working and you get a bunch of dirt in the wound, you don't realize that it's getting filthy and, and contaminated and, and before too long, it's too late. This is what I state here. The state of complacent morality, the, the soul that is in feeling good about itself, that's been reoccupied by demons, is in a worse state than before because they didn't realize the wound was there and the poisons come in. The Apostle Peter also helps us see this in a similar proverb to what Jesus is saying here. If you want to flip over to 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at a couple of passages there, and we're going to close out here. Oh. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Here's what the Apostle Peter says. He's actually echoing what Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 12. Peter writes, These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. What's Peter saying here? He's talking about false teachers, pharisaical, self-righteous teachers who are teaching Save yourselves. But what they are doing is they're actually opening up a black darkness through their arrogant words of vanity. And what happens here at the end of verse 19? For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. That's an important point here. Whatever has overcome your soul, that is what you are a slave to. If you, if, if seven demons seven evil spirits have come back into your cleaned out moral righteous self and, and taken you over, you are overcome by that and you are enslaved to that. Yet, if Christ is taking up residence in this soul of yours, that's who you're enslaved to. Who would you rather be enslaved to, Christ or the demons? Then in order to be enslaved to Christ, what must occur? Christ must dwell in the soul. He must purge out the sin, must purge out the self-righteousness, must purge out the arrogance and the vanity and take over through his grace and his mercy over our sinful lives. The result here in Second Peter, the result of being overcome by moral righteousness alone itself is an enslavement to the vile. When we drop down to verse 21 in Second Peter chapter 2, here's what he says. For if after they have escaped the defilement of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them Than the first Peter is echoing Jesus's words from Matthew 12. The falsely religious, the fleshly desires of sensuality, life that is in error, this black darkness entangles the misguided soul again. Then in verse 22, For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after watching returns wallowing in the mire. Christians, how many of us have been guilty of this? The final warning here, going back to Matthew twelve forty five, is that one's moral state is not a guarantee of eternal security, not at all. Outer reform without inner transformation and occupancy of Christ Himself brings brings us into a state of being susceptible to even worse sin. The key in Jesus' warning here is that the Only the humble who embrace Christ himself, only the true filling of the soul by Christ and the spirit of Christ is the permanent change of the soul that keeps the evil forces at bay. That's it. We cannot willfully abandon sin and hope to remain in a state of purity and holiness. It's not going to work, folks. We can't just do the right thing. Make the right choices. Appear to be holy. No work at all is ever going to bring us to a state of security and eternal, eternal grace with Christ apart from Christ himself purging us from our sin, washing us clean, giving us forgiveness of our sin, and taking up residence in our very being. That's it. The truly repentant, the redeemed soul will be the soul that is occupied by Christ himself. There's no more room for evil if this is the case. There's no more room for temptation to take residence. We're going to face temptation, yet in those temptation moments, we have Christ residing in us, pushing back against the evil temptation, giving us the strength, the power, the ability to say, no, Any temptation that comes when Christ occupies the soul is the temptation from outside the person. It's the temptation from the world. It's not a temptation from evil forces that dwell within us. And Christ himself has conquered the world and taken it back into his possession as it rightly should be. So Christian, what are we doing? If Christ resides in us, then temptation can be overcome as temptation will come. But the source of that temptation will not be within us the evil forces that control us. It'll be that temptation from the world that when Christ dwells in us, will enlighten us to show us what it is. It will have no control. Christ will be in control. Jesus is warning us here to all have been delivered from the devil's spiritual tyranny to beware lest we fall into it again for that the demon being driven out of us the evil spirits being driven out of us we are the old habitation that it will strive to come back into us again but when the evil spirits come back into us again when our sinful state takes back us uh, takes us back over it's going to be with a greater fury and a greater ruin but if that happens, Christ was never there to begin with. Yet if we've heard the truth of the gospel, we even may voice and claim the name of Christ for ourselves. We may verbally say, Jesus is my Lord. Yet if Jesus is not residing in you, if the Spirit of Christ is not in you, then we are, according to the words of Jesus here in Matthew 12, we are in a dangerous position. And I say this with love and compassion. The one whose fear of this warning If you're, if you, if you walk away today and you say, well, that was a nice sermon, and then don't even think about it again, don't even think about the words of Jesus again, and just go off into your own sinful state, it's a temporary position, and it's one whose embrace of Christ is temporary. I mean, the, the Gospels and the New Testament show time and time again that it is possible for someone to embrace Christ in a temporary state if that's the case, that embracing of Christ was of our own making, it was a moral choice. It was not a clear renewal of the heart. It was not a true renewal of the person. It was, I like Jesus. Yes, I do. Jesus, be my best friend. And it's a temporary state at best. Yet the one whose fear of what Jesus is saying here is a permanent fear and a permanent warning. This is the one who has embraced Christ permanently since Christ dwells in him or her and if that's the case, Christ will never depart from you. Notice in verses 43 through 45 of Matthew chapter 12, which spirit departs? It's the evil spirits. They'll leave. They don't care about you. But if Christ dwells, if the spirit of Christ dwells, he will never depart from the genuine, repentant, and humble heart. Nathan, come on forward. Let's pray. And the men who will be passing out the communion elements, if you can make your way forward too. Father God Almighty, we we pause after reading and hearing the words of your Son, Jesus Christ. All they are warning words that I pray God this morning would just sink into our souls. Dear Father, this is not a a, a message, a, a, a passage of your gospel that is to cause us to fear our salvation, but it is a warning to be alert to the state of our being before you. Dear God, are we being morally righteous in our own power? Are we trying to be good Christians of our own energies? Are we trying to cast away the evil temptations under our own will? Or dear God, are we totally surrendered and occupied by the spirit of your son, Jesus Christ. God, when we fail you, sometimes we may feel like we have been taken over by evil forces. But dear God, if your spirit is within us, please show us your grace. Give us your strength and your encouragement if we are truly in your body. If we are truly in your embrace. Give us encouragement, Father, when, when we do face these struggles. Remind us of who we belong to. Please remind us, if, if Christ does dwell in us, remind us in those moments of weakness that Christ is in us. But God, in those moments of weakness, if we are empty... I pray, God, that you would protect us and, and use that moment of emptiness and that moment of danger as a wake-up call to embrace your son, Jesus Christ. Oh, God, your words in your gospel is true. And the words of your son are true. And I thank you, Father, for showing us the truth of the spiritual battle that is going on and the grace that is involved in that, where, dear Father, you embraced us. You rescued us from this fallen, evil world. You have rescued us, Father, and you've taken us back into your loving embrace. And, Father, thank you for that truth. And Father, I pray that those of us who are in your grace, who are your chosen and you have redeemed us, remind us of our state. If we are blind to that, if we have become numb to that, please awaken us to the glory of your grace. But God, if we are not in that elect chosen group, we have rejected your holy spirit's work in our lives or we have blinded ourselves to the truth of our confession father i pray that you would cause any who are in that state to repent at this moment to allow christ to come in to to embrace christ and and christ take them over and fill their hearts and their souls with his soul with his spirit and his presence so that these evil forces these evil temptations would be at bay God, we need you. And right now, Father, as Nathan begins to play, we are going to worship you as your Son has commanded us to worship. Dear Father, you have given us a command in your Scriptures to, from time to time, gather together as your people and to remember the cost of your Son, Jesus Christ, for our sins. I pray God that at this moment, as we do transition into this, this form of worship, that the words of your Son Jesus that we've just read today would fill us, Lord, with you, with His love and His grace. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 reminds us of what we're doing here. The Lord's table is a time of worship. It's a time for the body of Christ to remember who we are. It's a time for us to remember that it was a Savior who died for us and His death and His resurrection was costly. Yet the gift is free. The Apostle Paul reminds us to prepare our hearts at this moment. He says, whoever there eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So as the men distribute the elements here in a minute, I'm going to ask that we all examine our hearts at this time. Use this time for meditation and prayer. If you're a visitor with us today, you are more than welcome to participate. If you're a born-again, baptized believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to join us. If you're you're in this room and you're not a born-again, baptized believer in Christ, then I will, as I ask every month, I want to ask that you refrain from participating. This is a time for God's people. And if you're not in God's people, if you are not a baptized, born-again believer then come speak to us. We'd love to chat with you. Gentlemen, please distribute the elements.